News of the Times. History News Story. Today's classic story, not so different from American tales of the Wild West, recounts the tale of Thomas Blood, also known as Colonel Blood, who stole the crown jewels from the Tower of London in 1671. The tale is recounted from the Newgate calendar. The wording can somewhat be unwieldy. We have made some slight changes to text where we felt it was necessary to better clarify. We really hope you enjoy the show. From the Newgate calendar, 1671. Thomas Blood, generally called Colonel Blood, who stole the crown from the Tower of London on the 9th of May, 1671. About Thomas Blood. This desperate man was the son of a blacksmith in Ireland, but from other accounts his father appears to have been concerned in ironworks and to have acquired an easy fortune in that kingdom. Thomas was born about the year 1628 and came to England while a young man and married in Lancashire, the daughter of Mr. Holcroft, a gentleman of good character in that county. He returned afterwards into Ireland and served as a lieutenant with the Parliament forces, where he obtained an assignment of land for his pay. Additionally, Henry Cromwell put him into the commission of the peace, though he was scarcely but twenty-two years of age. Thomas's political interest. These favours gave him such a poor inclination to the Republican Party as was not to be altered. After the King's restoration, some accidents contributed to increase his disaffection to the government. Upon his associating a little with the malcontents, he found his notions exactly justified, and that there was a design on foot for a general insurrection, which was to be begun by surprising the castle of Dublin and seizing the person of the Duke of Ormond, then Lord Lieutenant. Into this scheme he entered without any hesitation, although many of the persons involved in the dangerous undertaking were much his superiors in rank, yet he was very soon at the head of the affair, presiding in all their councils and was the oracle in all of their projects and generally relied on in the execution of them. But on the very eve of its execution, the whole conspiracy which had long been suspected was discovered. His brother-in-law, named Lackey, who was a minister, was, with many others, apprehended, tried, convicted, and executed. But Blood made his escape, and kept out of reach, notwithstanding the Duke of Ormond and the Earl of Oray labouring to have him secured. A proclamation was published by the Duke of Ormond with the promise of an ample reward for apprehending him. Thomas Blood as International Conspirator Blood found means to get over to, into Holland, where he was well received and admitted 
into great intimacy with some of the most considerable persons in the Republic, particularly Admiral de Reuter. He went from Holland to England with such recommendations to the Fifth Monarch Men and other malcontents, where he was immediately admitted into all of their councils and had a large share in the dark intrigues that were then carrying on for throwing the nation again into confusion. In this situation he gave another strong instance of his bold and enterprising genius. But, finding the government apprised of their designs and foreseeing that the persons principally concerned could not escape being apprehended, he resolved to withdraw into Scotland. Here he saw wrought upon the discontents of the people that he contributed not a little to the breaking out of the insurrection there, and was present in the action of Pentland Hills on the 27th of November, 1666, in which the insurgents were routed and about 500 killed. He fled from this defeat back to England, and from thence to Ireland, where he landed within three miles of Carrickfergus. But Lord Dungannon pursued him so closely that he was obliged to retire into England. Thomas Blood's Successful Rescue of His Friend from Prison He had not been long in this kingdom before he performed a fresh exploit, which was as extraordinary, more successful, and made greater interest in the world than anything he had yet done. This was the rescue of his friend, Captain Mason, from a guard of soldiers who were conducting him to his trial at the Assizes. His next enterprise was entirely of his own contrivance. He was seizing the person of his old antagonist, the Duke of Ormond, in the streets of London. Whether this was with a view to murder or carry him off till he had answered their expectation is not perfectly clear. Blood actually put his design in execution on the 6th of December 1670 and was very near completing his purpose. However, the Duke was fortunately rescued out of his hands. He and his associates escaped, though closely pursued. An account on this transaction was immediately published by authority together with a royal proclamation offering a reward of £1,000 for apprehending any of the persons concerned. Thomas Blood's plan to steal the crown jewels. The miscarriage of this daring design, instead of daunting him or creating the least intention of flying out of the kingdom, put him on another, more strange and hazardous scheme to repair his broken fortune. He proposed to those desperate persons who assisted him in his former attempt to seize and divide amongst them the royal insignia of majesty kept in the Tower of London, that is, the crown, the globe, the sceptre, and the dove. As they were blindly devoted to his service, they were readily accepted 
the proposal and left it to him to contrive the means of putting it into execution. He devised a scheme of putting himself into the habit of a doctor of divinity with a little band, a long false beard, a cap with ears, and all the formalities of garb belonging to that degree, except the gown, choosing rather to make use of a cloak as the most proper for his design. Thus, habited, he, with a woman who he called his wife, went to see the curiosities in the tower, and while they were viewing the regalia, the supposed Mrs. Blood pretended to be taken suddenly ill, and desired Mr. Edwards, the keeper of the regalia, to assist her with some refreshment. Mr. Edwards not only complied with this request, but also invited her to repose herself on a bed which she did, and after a pretended recovery took her leave, together with blood, with many expressions of gratitude. A few days later, blood returned and presented Mrs. Edwards, the keeper's wife, with four pairs of white gloves in return for her kindness. This brought on an acquaintance which, being soon improved into a strict intimacy, a marriage was proposed between a son of Edwards and a supposed daughter of Colonel Blood. The Plan into Action The night before the 9th of May, 1671, the doctor told the old man that he had some friends at his house who wanted to see the regalia, but that they were to go out of town early in the morning, and therefore hoped that he would gratify them with the sight, though they might come a little before the usual hour. Accordingly, two of them came, accompanied by the doctor, about eight in the morning, and the third held their horses. They waited for them at the outer gate of the towers, ready saddled. They had no other apparatus but a wallet and a wooden mallet, which there was no great difficulty to secrete. Edwards received them with great civility and immediately admitted them into his office. But as it, it is usual for the keeper of the regalia when he shows them to lock himself up in a kind of grate with open bars, the old man had no sooner opened the door of this place than the doctor and his companions were in at his heels, and without giving him time to ask questions, silenced him by knocking him down with the wooden mallet. They then instantly made flat the bows of the crown to make it more portable, seized the sceptre and the dove, put them together into the wallet, and were preparing to make their escape, when, unfortunately for them, the old man's son, who had not been at home for ten years before, returned from sea at that very instant. Being told that his father was with some friends who would be very glad to see him at the jewel office, he hastened hither immediately, and met Blood and his companions as they were just coming out. Instead of returning and securing the son, as in good policy they should have done, Blood and his associates hurried away with the crown and the globe, but not having time to file the sceptre, 
they left it behind them. Old Edwards, the keeper who had been hit by the mallet, was not so much hurt as the villains had apprehended, and, by the time, had recovered his legs and cried out murder, being heard by his daughter, she ran out and gave an alarm, and Blood and Perrot, making great haste, were observed to jog each other's elbows as they went, which gave great reason for suspecting them. Blood and his accomplices were now advanced beyond the main guard, but the alarm being given to the warder at the drawbridge, he put himself in a posture to stop their progress. Blood discharged a pistol at the warder, who, though unhurt, fell to the ground through fear, by which they got safe away to a little wardhouse gate, where one, still, who had been a soldier under Oliver Cromwell, stood sentinel. But though this man saw the warder, to all appearances, shot, he made no resistance against Blood and his associates, who now got over the drawbridge and through the outer gate upon the wharf. At this place they were overtaken by one Captain Beckman, who had pursued them from Edward's house. Blood immediately discharged a pistol at Beckman's head, but he, stooping under at the instant, the shot missed, and he seized Blood, who had the crown under his cloak. Blood and Associates Captured Blood struggled a long while to preserve his prize, and when it was at length wrested from him, he said, It was a gallant attempt, how unsuccessful, however, for it was for a crown before blood was taken. Perrot had been seized by another person, and young Edwards, observing a man that was bloody in the scuffle, was about to run him through the body, but was prevented by Captain Beckman. Upon this disappointment, Blood's spirits failed him, and while he remained a prisoner in the jail of the tower, he appeared not only silent and reserved, but dogged and sullen. A visit in prison by King Charles II. He soon changed his temper, however, when, contrary to all reason, probability, and his own expectation, he was informed that the king intended to see and examine him himself. This was brought about by the Duke of Buckingham, then the great favourite and Prime Minister, who infused into his majesty, over whom he had, had for some time a great ascendancy, the curiosity of seeing so extraordinary a person, whose crime, great as it was, displayed extraordinary force of mind, and made it probably that, if so disposed, he might be capable of making great discoveries. Blood was described by all who saw him of having performed admirably on this occasion. Blood answered whatever his majesty demanded of him clearly and without reserve. He did not pretend to capitulate or make terms, but seemed rather pleased to throw his life into the king's hands by an open and boundless confession. Blood did take care, however, to pre-proposes his majesty in his, by various and though very different methods, and at the same time 
He laid himself open to the law. He absolutely refused to impeach himself. While blood magnified the spirit and resolution of the party to which he adhered and had always acted against monarchy, he insinuated his own veneration for the person of the king. Though blood omitted nothing that might create a belief of his contemplating death, yet he expressed infinite awe and respect for a monarch who had condescended to treat him with unusual indulgence. It was foreseen by the Duke of Ormond, as soon as he knew the king designed to examine him, that blood had no cause to fear, and indeed his story and behaviour made such an impression on the mind of his sovereign that he was not only pardoned but set at liberty and had a pension given to him to subsist on. This conduct of his majesty towards so high and so notorious an offender occasioned much speculation and many conjectures. Colonel Blood at Court His interest was for some time very great at court, where he solicited the suits of many of the unfortunate people of his party with success. But as this gave great offence to some very worthy persons while it lasted, so, after the disgrace and dissolution of the ministry styled Cabal, it began quickly to decline, and perhaps his pension also was ill-paid, for he again joined the malcontents and acted in favour of popular measures that were obnoxious to the court. In this manner he passed between nine and ten years, sometimes about the court, sometimes excluded from it, always uneasy and in some scheme or other of an untoward kind, till at last he was met within his own way. More schemes by blood. It seemed there were certain people who had formed a design of fixing an imputation of a most scandalous nature upon the Duke of Buckingham, who was then at the head of a vigorous opposition against the court, and who, notwithstanding he always courted and protected the fanatics, had not, in respect to his moral character, so fair a reputation as to render any charge of that kind incredible. Eventually the Court of King's Bench viewed the affair in so different a light that Blood was convicted upon a criminal information for the conspiracy and committed to the King's Bench prison and, while in custody there, he was charged with an action of scandalium magnatium at the suit of the Duke of Buckingham, in which the damages were laid at £10,000. Notwithstanding this, Colonel Blood found bail and was discharged from his imprisonment. He then retired to his house in the bowling alley in Westminster in order to take such measures as were requisite to free himself from these difficulties. Blood's illness, death, 
exjumimation to check he was indeed alive, and reburial. But Blood, finding fewer friends than he expected, and meeting with others a more grievous disappointment, he was so much affected thereby as to fall into a distemper that speedily threatened his life. He was attended in his sickness by a clergyman who found him sensible but reserved, declaring he was not at all afraid of death. In a few days he fell into a lethargy, and on Wednesday the 24th of August, 1680, he departed this life. On the Friday following he was privately but decently interred in the new chapel in Tothill Fields. Yet such was the notion entertained by the generality of the world of this man's subtlety and relentless spirit that they could neither be persuaded he would be quiet in his grave, nor would they permit him to remain so. It was believed that a story being spread of his dying and being buried was only a new trick of Colonel Blood's proprietary to some more extraordinary exploit than any he had been concerned in. This belief became in a few days so current, and so many circumstances were added to render it credible, that the coroner thought it fit to interpose. The coroner ordered Blood's body to be taken up again on the Thursday following, and he appointed a jury to sit upon it. By the various depositions of persons attending him in his last illness, they were convinced, and the coroner caused Blood to be once more interred and left in quiet. And so passed the dramatic life of Colonel Blood, the man who stole the crown jewels from the Tower of London. That concludes this News of the Times episode of Colonel Blood, the man who stole the crown jewels from the Tower of London. We hope you really enjoyed the show. If you did enjoy the show, please subscribe and tell your friends. Subscribing really helps us. We are aiming for 1,000 subscribers. There is no cost to you, and it really helps to support us. Just tap on the subscribe button that pops up if you haven't already subscribed. We upload longer Regency or Victorian crime stories three times a week, with shorter Victorian stories on other days to give a flavour of the times. For our podcast listeners, you can see this podcast with the associated pictures on our YouTube channel at News of the Times. You can find the link in the show notes below. Thank you again for watching and listening. This has been News of the Times, and I am Robin Coles.